and welcome to those who have just tuned in. The lectures that Nicholas Pickwode is delivering today are brought to you courtesy not only of the Rosenbach Foundation at the University of Pennsylvania, but also of the Book Arts Press of the School of Library Service at Columbia University. This is an audience of people who, by and large, know our operations very well, and it is almost, if not quite, superfluous to draw your attention, as always, to the existence of the Friends of the Book Arts Press, which is a cheap and convenient way for you to get on our best mailing list. We sent out a notice to the members of the Guild of Bookworkers in the New York area and also to some of the other names on our non-A local mailing list because we uh, were eager for there to be a good crowd here today. We don't normally do that. And if you are interested in the historical book arts in particular or the book arts in general, then certainly the Friends of the Book Arts Press is not only, uh, as we hope, a worthy object of your support, but uh, an indispensable one, since a great deal goes on here in these areas. These brochures will be in room 523 after the lecture, as well as copies of the Rare Book School 1990 brochure, about which I have been asked for copies. And I hope that after this lecture, you will all join us and the speaker in room 523 for wine and informal discussion. Nicholas Pickwood. Oh, <clears throat> here we are. Uh, I went to a performance of Nicholas Nickleby in London some years ago, which was the special Saturday performance which put two parts end on. And at the end of the second part, uh, as the audience were applauding, the cast came down to the front of the stage and applauded the audience. And I feel rather like that for those of you who have been here so long and are still awake. Thank you. Um, we come now to the last of the four, um, which is entitled The Naming of Parts, The Use of Structure to Create Categories, though something to do with topsy and just growing perhaps might be more appropriate. Um, I've looked in the last two lectures at some of the details to be found in bindings which can give rise, at the very least, to speculation about the position which those books occupy within the worlds of bookselling and ownership. Whilst looking at such self-contained areas of interest, it is easy to forget the larger categories of bindings, the ones which are so common that they are rarely described in any detail, and which are therefore rather perversely condemned by the large numbers in which they survive to comparative obscurity. My subject in those letters has, I hope, been evidence of the interest which can be found in the unusual, but the very term unusual presupposes the existence of the great mass of the usual. Uh, I should therefore like in this lecture to look at ways in which it might be possible to come to terms with those bindings which at first appear to hold out very little hope of individual interest, but which by their very preponderance actually represent the bread and butter of the book trade at all periods. Um, I referred in my first lecture to the inadequacy of such terms, still often found in catalogues as contemporary calf, which tell us so little about the bindings that they describe as to be almost useless. It will, I hope, be a useful exercise to take such a description, contemporary vellum or old vellum is another commonly found expression, and see just what could be hiding within it and just how diverse the bindings so described might be. Out of it should emerge a clearer idea of just what a proper description of a binding might entail 
and certainly must entail if it is to be used as evidence for the existence of certain types of binding at particular dates or from particular places. Could I have the lights, please? Oh, we need some at the front. Thank you. First of all, of course, is the question of just what is meant by the word vellum. Whatever its origin, the word has been used so indiscriminately to describe skins from different animals that references to it are mostly unreliable to the extent that they can be taken to mean little more than an animal skin prepared in a certain way which will involve soaking, liming, scraping and drying under tension while stretched on a frame. Today there is an attempt to restrict the meaning of the word vellum to the material made from calf skins. There is a connection with the word veal, and it would be useful if this usage could become generally accepted, the term that would then have a more precise meaning. Parchment is a term which has been and is also applied to the skins of different animals, and there is now some agreement that it should refer perhaps to sheepskin, though whether a whole skin or a flesh split, that is the part of a skin split through its thickness, which comes from the inside of the skin when on the animal, or even a hair split, which is the other half of the split, is by no means clear unless actually specified. The word parchment, in fact, derives from the ancient city of Pergamon in Turkey, in modern Turkey, that is, where Eumenes II is supposed to have encouraged its manufacture when the supply of papyrus from Egypt failed. And there is no reason why the word should not be used as the generic, since it does not in itself specify an animal in the way that vellum does, and then is a term that can be qualified by the animal whose skin is being described, where this is known. Thus, you could refer to goat parchment, which would make a lot more sense than goat vellum, which conjures up a rather curious animal. An alternative, if the identity of the animal is unknown, is the term membrane, which, rather like the word Morocco, is useful because it can mean almost anything. Uh, at least it defines something um, and uh, is not so likely to be a mistake. It also has sound historical precedent, as the Latin phrase immembranis is often found in old lists and catalogues to describe books bound in skins prepared in this particular way. Other references can be much more precise, of course, and the inventory compiled in 1495 for Ercolo d'Este refers not merely to sheep, but actually distinguishes between carta pecorina and carta montanina, parchment from ewes and rams, and gives us a glimpse of a descriptive precision that we have long, long since lost. The problem, of course, comes in distinguishing the different skins one from another, and this is of more than zoological interest. Individual species may well be restricted to certain countries or will have been restricted to certain countries at historical periods um, and can therefore give some indication of provenance, at least for the cheaper bindings where local materials are most likely to be used. Clearly, the more exotic materials, the early use of fine goatskins from the Arab world does not necessarily indicate provenance because the skins were sent all over Europe. Uh, species identification is, in fact, usually, usually reasonably straightforward, unless the skins are so heavily scraped that the grain layer, the outer layer of the central layer of the skin that is used, is actually removed. In this case, distinguishing between them can be hard, though fortunately the skins used for covering books are less likely to be so scraped than the skins used for writing on. So you'll often find the darker tone of the surviving grain layer actually on the vellum used for binding where it may have been removed for manuscript leaves for writing on. The zoologist might well also be able to distinguish between different breeds within the same species, and even the less well-informed should be able to distinguish between different ages at the time of slaughtering, and this too may be information which could prove significant. Indeed, to the historical zoologist, animal skins used in books are proving a fertile source of information, and there is no reason why the process should not work the other way around if sufficient information is available. There is, in fact, a, a woman from uh, Philadelphia studying the leaves of insular Irish manuscripts in a study of husbandry in early medieval Ireland. Um, 
something which I think the manuscript curators find a little hard to swallow at first. Another source of variety lies in the preparation of the skins, which may not vary only from country to country, but from manufacturer to manufacturer. Grouping bindings known to be from particular areas may in fact prove to be one way of identifying the types of skin which are likely to be found in those areas, and thus in turn lead to similar skins localizing otherwise unplaced bindings. There is clearly a great deal of work to be done in this field. Depending on the quality and translucence of the skins used, for instance, the binders sometimes chose to paint the inside of the skin with something very similar to whitewash, or to line the skin with white paper, or both, to improve its brightness and increase its opacity, and therefore show less of the structure of the book on the spine, uh, underneath the, the bound book. And there is therefore a distinction to be made between skins so treated and those not, a very simple, obvious distinction that begins to divide this great lump of bindings up into smaller areas for study. The process was also used to soften the skin with the moisture involved and thus to make it easier to fold around the book and or the boards. So one has to be aware of why the process was used as well as how it was used and then try and work out when and where it was used. Vellum and parchment could also be stained, typically green in France and England from the mid-17th century, but a variety of colours in Italy and elsewhere. Though such coloured bindings are very much in the minority, but they too may have local implications in terms of localising where it was done. In England, however, green-stained vellum established itself in the 18th century as the standard colour for ledgers and other blank books, uh, books, that is, for the, for the office rather than the library, and for books designed to be carried around in bags and pockets, such as maps. This is a copy of Ogilvy's maps. In Germany and Scandinavia, there was also a vogue for painted vellum bindings with a variety of sometimes outlandish designs. Vellum, obviously, is a material which is very easy to paint and write upon, so it can be done on a binding as much as on a, a vellum leaf of a book. Assuming that some attempt can be made to identify the material, so often called old vellum, with greater precision, the next task is to look under the skin at the structure of the book to see just how much variety may be found there. There are initially a few very broad and easily distinguished classifications which the least trained eye should be able to identify. One such classification divides books into those with stiff boards and those which are limp. That is simple enough, though there are complications introduced by those bindings in which the vellum is folded over thin sheets of cover paper or cartonnage and which are sometimes described as semi-limp uh, or those in which the cartonnage forms a continuous wrapper from board to board across the spine, giving already three distinct classifications of structure. The use of cartonnage in this way <clears throat> allows thinner, poorer quality and thus cheaper skins to be used. And I've recently seen a small early 17th century English uh, octavo where a sheet of thick paper alone was used as the inner wrapper, a piece of very, very thin parchment indeed folded around that, and that again puts it into a, a different category. Where stiff boards are concerned, the board material, of course, can be identified and thus begin to divide up the, the numbers. Typically it will be either a paste, that is to say laminated board, or a pulp board made from pulped up paper. But from the end of the 17th century in England, boards made from rope fibre will be more commonly found. And in Germany, Scandinavia, and some parts of Holland, scabbard, the thin split wooden boards, will also be found. More substantial books may also have thick wooden boards of oak or beech or other woods, depending on what might most be most readily available locally. Binders are not going to import wood from a great distance unless they have to. They will use what is locally available so far as possible. This is a copy of a large atlas, a blau atlas, um, in thick beech boards. Um, a stiff board tight back vellum binding, but we'll come to them in a moment. Limp covers may also be divided into those which are cut flush, that is to say the outer edges of the board are simply cut flush with the edge of the text block, and those which have turn-ins, 
as here. And another variation even within this slide, the use of uh, the vellum being cut out on the lower turn-in to make the joints a little bit more flexible. <coughs> those which have turn-ins on the fore-edge only, and those which have turn-ins at head and tail only. The same binder or the same workshop is unlikely to be doing all these things at the same time. And then there are those of all sorts which also have fore-edge or envelope-type flaps of different shapes. This is a plain cut-flush wrapper with a fore-edge flap. You've seen examples earlier on today. And here, a rather more elaborately folded and prepared example from Germany. More important, however, is whether the text blocks of limp vellum bindings are stitched or sewn. This is the distinction between stitching through the side of the inner margin or sewing through the fold. This is a fundamental distinction with implications for cost and status. There being regulations in England established in 1586 limiting the number of folded sheets in the different formats which could be held together by stitching. This was to preserve the bookbinders who felt their income was being threatened by booksellers who felt a needle, a hammer and a length of thread would put them out of business. When they are stitched, not only are there varieties of ways in which the simple operation of stitching can be carried out, the number of holes, the length of the spine so secured, the route of the thread or thong through the holes and so on, but also the simple question of whether the book is stitched through the cover as well as the text block, or only through the text block with the cover attached as a separate operation. Um, in terms of a description, simply referring to this as stitched does not tell you. Um, what you've got here is a vellum guard, a single little strip of vellum, got the thread of the original stitching of the pamphlet and then thongs stamped through to hold on the vellum cover. The distinction here could be significant as the latter, this two double operation, suggests that a stitch pamphlet which has subsequently had a protective wrapper attached to it but which is not original to it whereas the first might suggest an elementary form of publisher's binding that is just a simple wrapper protecting the pamphlet as issued. The latter will also need to be carefully examined as externally uh, these covers look, can look very much like those on sewn books. If you were to find that book lying on a table, you would assume that it was a conventional limp vellum binding. There is no external evidence to suggest otherwise. It is only obviously when you look inside that you will find the difference. Um, being attached here by alum toward thongs, and in this case, I've gone one too far, I'm sorry, sta stabbed through the joints of the textbook. You can see, however, the thread stitching of the first stitching still in place. And this is a a wrapper added cheaply at some subsequent date. Deceptively similar in internal, external appearance also is this survival, which is unique in my experience, of an unsewn, glued limp vellum binding on a text dated 1627. There is not a piece of thread used in the construction of this book. It simply had saw cuts across the spine and nine strips of alum toward skin laid into those saw cuts, and as you can see, three of them laced in through the cover. Externally, it looks like a limp vellum, although the position of this thong right at the edge here might lead you to suspect that something odd was going on. When the text blocks are sewn, that is to say sewn through the folds of the gathering, the number and type of sewing supports will vary according to size and, I think, according to country and possibly quality. Basically, the greater the number of supports, the more expensive the work. Oh, sorry, that is the, the spine of that glued binding. I'd forgotten I put that in. Um, a canvas lining trying to hold the thongs still in place. The thongs that were laid into the empty cuts have fallen away. Only those laced into the cover have survived. Just as a note on this one too, because the, where materials were coming from is of some importance, you'll notice that the flesh side of the alum tall goatskin thongs are stained a dark brown or black. 
This is very common on a lot of these bindings where you'll find red, yellow, blue, green stains on this. And I'm sure that these strips of Allentor goat are, in fact, offcuts from the clothing industry from making gloves, breeches, and so on, and were not designed for binder's use, but were simply small pieces of, of Allentor skin which could be used economically in this way, bought cheap and used for this particular purpose. They are very, very common indeed. Um, a nice limp vellum binding with the arms of Anton Fugger on the cover. Basically, as I say, the greater the number of supports, the more expensive the work, since it would take more time to sew. It's a simple equation. An examination of the structures of heavily decorated bindings would give some idea of how the better quality books were constructed in different countries. Books sewn on double supports will again take longer, but here there are regional and chronological factors at play. The earlier the binding, the more likely it is to be sewn on double supports, but in Spain, the use of double support seems to have lasted longer than elsewhere into the 17th century, certain, well into the 17th century at least. Um, with the double supports, and with the double supports, you will usually find the characteristic V-shaped formed by the thongs as they are pushed back inside the cover through separate holes, having emerged the joint through a single hole, as you can see very clearly in this example. The end bands also laced in, and a very typical Spanish habit of lettering the spine from end to end in large letters and manuscript. There is also a tendency for the thickness of the supports and the width of the joint to decrease through the 16th century as standards dropped in response to the increasing number of books emerging from the printing presses. Um, it has to be remembered the sheer increase in output of printed material, particularly at the beginning of the 16th century and the first half of the 16th century, must have presented binders with tremendous problems of working out structures which would perform properly and yet would be reasonably economical to produce. The old methods of making books were simply not fast enough to keep up with the, the level of uh, production from the presses. Typically, limp vellum bindings will be sewn on strips of an alum toward skin, usually goat skin, but obviously other animals can be used. And other materials are also found, such as tanned leather, twisted or flat lengths of vellum, or even cord. The supports may even be reinforced with short lengths of brass rod, wood, or bone. Wood, in this case, you can see the wood here inserted under the sewing, a practice which seems to derive from medieval stationary binding traditions. Um, and a group has been identified by a man called Professor Tsiermai in Holland using brass, strips of brass worked into the sewing of the books to prevent the spine from moving too much and thus presumably to reinforce it. Um, and he has managed to localize this group to a particular area of the Dutch-German border. And it does give an illustration of how these very distinct techniques are quite likely to be common in a particular area, not necessarily to one workshop alone, but at least to an area, and can be identified, can be listed, and can be worked out, and so when they turn up, there is a good chance of being able to localize what you find. Um, also, the same point that I made earlier on, that a workshop that is doing this is unlikely to use something else. It is likely to continue with the same practice if it is producing them in large quantities. The use of all these different materials, therefore, is not accidental, and that is the important thing to remember. I mean, there the will be accidental cases where something is simply picked up and used because they'd run out of whatever else it was. Um, and they must, where this is not the case, reflect different craft traditions and the availability of the materials. Their correct identification will allow us to group the books so bound, and that may well give us the clues that we need to give more and more precise dates and places to their use. As discussed in my third lecture, the presence or otherwise of end bands is also significant, and once again, regional factors will come into play. Um, in this example, which is English, you also notice a large flay hole, very prominently displayed in the front of the cover. Um, this is the use of 
material which is in some way damaged or marked without any regard to the fact that it is so damaged or marked. It is another indication of a lower level in the hierarchy of binding. For the top quality work, obviously, a skin like this would not be used uh, as you go down through the hierarchy, so you are more and more likely to find such faults in the skin. It seems to me that there is a greater tendency to dispense with N-bands in England than in other European countries, certainly in the 17th century. But this may simply be a reflection of my greater experience of English books, and that is also, of course, something one always has to bear in mind, that you have only seen what you have seen, and what you have seen may not be a general selection. So the identification of libraries in different countries, which are likely to provide a really wide selection of what is available in those individual countries is an essential to trying to work out what the national styles are. Working on Italian bindings in English libraries is going to give you a selection, however that selection may have been formed. And certainly one needs to consider the different periods at which different countries abandoned limp vellum binding as a mainstream type of binding towards the middle of the 17th century in England, but not until at least the mid-18th century or even the late 18th century in Spain. Whether the N-bands are worked or stuck on constitutes, as we have seen, a further and usually easily identified division into types. The material used for the cores of worked N-bands, usually either alum toward skin, the animal is often not easily identified from such small samples, obviously, or vellum, either twisted or in flat strips, creates still further subdivisions. The different colours used for both stuck-on and worked N-bands, the threads, that is, may also prove to follow patterns. Whether the spines are lined or not is usually easily seen, and if lined, whether with printed or manuscript waste, plain paper or vellum, or plain or decorated textile, will all help to divide the material into more and more manageable groupings, as well, obviously, in the case of manuscript waste, as possibly identifying bindings from the same binding shop. If you have fragments of manuscript from the same source, then it is likely to be from the same uh, binding shop as well, Um, also possibly with printed waste and the printed waste may well tie up a bindery with a printing shop, but not necessarily. There was a market in second-hand printed waste. The construction of the end leaves, how they were folded, whether or not they have guards folded around them, and what these guards are made of will also help to define different groupings. This, in fact, is a full vellum flyleaf on the right-hand side, something which I've not seen very often, and the workshop that is using this is going to be at least potentially identifiable because of it. Uh, though at this stage, obviously, exactly what these groupings may mean may not, may not be immediately clear. Only when the groups have been assembled will it be possible to try to interpret them. Whether or not the outer leaf or leaves of the end papers are or were pasted to the inside of the covers offers another area for subdivision, though it is not always easy to distinguish between original paste downs and fly, le- and fly leaves pasted down subsequently by tidy-minded owners or librarians who found the unlined inside of the cover in some way offensive. Um, that happens very often. Uh, in this particular example on the screen, this is a Spanish binding of the early 18th century, and what you see in this, these smudges and smears, these brush marks around the edge of the paste dye, which look to our eyes very clumsy, uh, Spanish bindings of this period often do look very clumsy, in fact is, a very, is an example of the binder being very much aware of how the material is going to handle. Instead of pasting out the whole of the paste down and pasting it to the vellum cover, which would result in a stiff and rather unmanageable cover, likely to warp and distort in changes in temperature and humidity and so on, and cause problems. He has pasted around the edge and pasted the flyleaf only to the edge of the leaf so that you'd get less distortion. Um, So it may look clumsy, but in fact it is a sophisticated awareness of the handling characteristics of the material used. And that, again, 
is why our preconceptions about quality are very often misleading. The attachment of the cover to the text block provides scope for yet another set of variations. The usual method is to lace the slips of the sewing supports and the end bands, if there are any, of course, through the vellum cover and so provide the attachment. But in many cases, the only attachment is by means of the end band slips, thus saving time in putting the books together. The main sewing supports are just cut off the joint or just left unlaced in altogether. Sometimes the slips are laced through the vellum guards, which may be found folded around the end leaves, giving a, a rather stronger joint and evidence perhaps of a more careful level of production. And in the cases where the vellum cover is folded over cartonnage, the sewing supports are sometimes laced only through the cartonnage lining, um, the vellum cover being secured by the end band slips alone, which pierce both cover and lining. Where this happens, and this is the state uh, of the book on the screen, it is instructive to work out the sequence of events by which the binder arrived at the bound book. First, the cartonnage was laced on, and you can see here the holes from lacing on. But in this particular instance, the binder was laced on only one slip on each side, leaving this one unlaced on this side. On the other joint, it's the other way around. Uh, a very clear indication that he was saving time and doing it symmetrically. Um, symmetry is a great uh, indication of intention, if you like. If it is done symmetrically, you can be reasonably sure that it was done on purpose. If it comes out all over the place, well, you don't know whether it was just a, a bad hangover or whatever. Um, bookbinders have often been accused of drinking too much. Uh, Roger Payne, a notable example. Um, so you have to follow the procedure through. First of all, the cartonnage is laced on, and then the vellum is folded over it, revealing, in fact, that the cartonnage in this instance is not so much a lining as a support. And this may seem like a trivial difference, except when you're working out how the thing is constructed, and it does actually create two different categories within one combination of materials. And the book, in fact, in this case, is covered in a two-stage process. We have already seen and examined the possible significance of vellum wrappers held to already sewn books by Tackett's, as on the screen here, more books from the library of Jakob Bike, and the lacing pattern followed by the Tackett's, uh, usually of twisted gut or vellum, can also vary from book to book. There is an immense variety, simply the way in which these covers were attached to the, uh, the text blocks. And again, workshops are likely to be consistent, whether they come through two holes only as here, whether through four holes punched on either side of the sewing supports, whether through little tackets that come through the joint underneath each sewing support, like so. There is all sorts of different ways of doing it. Another form of attachment, which also constitutes the sewing structure, involves the use of the long stitch, as you saw in an earlier lecture. And it is a technique which had an extraordinarily long life, long life originating in medieval times and surviving in northern Europe until the very end of the 19th century in such specialized fields as almanac publishing in Holland. Uh, this is a, a Dutch almanac of the uh, 18, uh, early 19th century in this case, but in fact they, they, I found them in the Royal Library in The Hague up until the 1890s using long stitch to hold the cover on. And it is an example of how a particular area of publishing, a very specific and not uh, a very specific area of publishing will attract to it a certain style of binding which works for it and which is used over and over again, long beyond its actual practical use in other forms of bookbinding in the same area. Long stitch as a structure in Holland was way out of date by the 19th century, except for almanacs, it seems. Um, and in fact, in the decoration of English almanacs, the cottage style of the late 17th century survives until at least 1832. Because it becomes associated with almanacs, it is churned out every year at Christmas time 
and one can imagine that workshops producing these only functioned in this way in December, preparing the almanacs for the, the New Year market, which is how such a, an archaic structure can survive. Chris Clarkson tells me that they were still being sewn in Italy in the 1960s during the time he was there for the, uh, following the Florence floods. So it is a very long-lived structure indeed. There are also examples, mostly German, where the spine of the vellum wrapper is supported by a length of thick hide or some other inflexible material, with the sewing thread worked through them in intricate patterns. All these tacketed, long-stitch, chain-stitch bindings constitute entirely separate structural categories within the whole range of limp vellum bindings and will also be subject to some of the same variations as the other types in the form of whether or not they have four-edge flaps or have turn-ins, the format of the end leaves, and so on. Similar in appearance to tacketed bindings, but in fact related in structure both to long-stitch and conventionally sewn bindings, is another variant, where the gatherings are sewn to supports placed outside the vellum wrapper, so it is in a sense bound inside out. Um, You have here two supports made up of rolled vellum, the kettle stitches visible at head and tail, the difference from a conventional book being simply that there is a sheet of vellum interposed between the two. A different form of attachment, which can be seen as a development of the limp vellum binding, as it was used on printed books at least, is casing in, where the cover is attached to the text block only by adhesive, and it dates at least from the 1590s in Italian bindings. In these examples, which I have seen only on fairly thin books, the folded vellum cover is attached to the text block by being pasted to the outer leaves of the end leaves, in a procedure which is directly comparable to that practiced in the 19th century in uh, commercial trade binding. None of the slips, head, end bands, or main sewing supports are laced through the cover. This is not the moment to go into the development of case binding, but the description of post-medieval limp and stiffboard bindings which have the slips laced through the joints as laced case bindings is very apt and points to the close affinities between the two. But to point out the risks of jumping to conclusions, however, there is a limp vellum binding in the Grolier Club which is very similar externally to these case bind examples in that it has no slips laced through the joints and appears to be held together by the paste turns. And when I showed this to students in the first summer school I taught, I got it out as an example of case binding, only to discover, to my embarrassment, when looking at it, that it wasn't. Um, a close examination, in fact, reveals that the turnings of the vellum cover are folded over a stiff paper wrapper, which is itself folded around the spine and through which the gatherings are sewn on two raised cords. Um, the paper wrapper actually locates the vellum cover and the paste downs are then used to secure it. It is not, therefore, strictly speaking, a case binding, in which the cover must be formed as a separate component, finally attached to the text block by adhesive only, nor is it related to the laced-in type of limp binding. It forms a further category, in a sense, all of its own. But binders doing this are doing something different from the binders who are doing other types of structure. It is also quite possible to look at one type of stiffboard vellum binding as being in some ways related to the limp bindings, in that it is constructed up to the point of putting the vellum onto the text block in a very similar manner. But instead of leaving the, the sides limp, a stiff board, usually millboard, but sometimes scabbard, scale board, that is, thin split board, is inserted into each cover as part of the covering process. This is very nicely described by Debray in his manual of 1658. Um, and... It's instructive, in fact, to make a book following his instructions and see that what you emerge with is a very fine and very convincing-looking 17th-century Dutch stiffboard vellum binding. Not surprising, perhaps. This type of stiffboard vellum was known in the 17th and 18th centuries in England as being typically Dutch, and books so bound were sometimes described as being bound en, en manière d'olande, in the Dutch manner. 
though they are found frequently elaborately tooled as early as the mid-16th century in many other European countries, particularly France and Germany, and variants are to be found throughout Europe from then on. They were very common in Holland in the 17th and first half of the 18th centuries, sometimes gold-tooled, especially when used as prize bindings. The first example, in fact, was also a prize binding, but tooled in blind, um, but much more often left undecorated with manuscript titles. This one had a, a lot of works bound in together, uh, but more often left more or less completely plain, and known in Holland as scholars' bindings, which is one of those traditional descriptions which, in fact, are quite useful in trying to put, uh, divide them into areas of, of interest, if you like. Their manufacture, as I've said, is described in detail by Debray, and the end product has many similarities to cased work, particularly in the way that they have a hollow back. That is, the covering material is not adhered to the backs of the gatherings, and this is, of course, also a feature of limp vellum binding sewn on supports. Their opening characteristics are therefore rather similar. Also typical is the groove, a straw's breadth wide in Debray's description, which runs along the back edge of the boards and the spine. You can see it here. This allows the boards to open without putting too much strain on the vellum, and the slips, either from the sewing supports and the end bands, or the latter only, are laced through the joint across this groove, as you can see. Um, this groove is essential in making a working vellum binding of this sort. The head and tail of the spine are often shaped in the northern European version in a sharply defined reverse cap with a crease running behind it, which you can see in the slide there. Um, which not only made an elegant shape, but reinforced the spine and helped prevent it kinking in use. In some versions, the vellum on the foredge of the boards is extended into a flap similar to the so-called yap edge of the 19th century, and the more elegant versions are often equipped with textile ties or thongs to hold the book shut. But you have a whole range of varieties and the type of tie used, whether the bindings have these edges or not, whether they're sharply creased to a right angle, whether they are left comparatively unformed, and so on. The earlier versions are sometimes sewn on alum tord supports, as here. This is probably a German binding, uh, which may be either a chronological or a geographical distinction, or perhaps both. But in the standard pattern, the Dutch pattern, that is, uh, as well as some of the later German ones, the books were sewn on strips of vellum, the slips of which were slit back to the joint, leaving one narrow and one wider strip, the narrow one being laced through the joint and the wider one being pasted down onto the inside of the board underneath the joint. In some cases, the thicker strip was cut off at the joint, and in others, the entire slip was cut off, leaving only the end band slips laced through the joint, necessitating a variety of methods to prevent the sewing thread securing the end leaves from slipping off the end of the support. The binder in this case has chosen simply to loop the end leaf thread underneath the preceding four gatherings to hold the book together at the joints. Uh, a neat way of doing it, there are other ways of doing it. Punching a hole through the support is another common way. In the 18th century English work, the slips on the larger books, and especially in account book bindings, were often slit into three strips, a narrow one on either side of the single one, with both thin ones laced through the joint. And you can see on the paste down of an English ledger binding, the, narrow, the two narrow strips there and the broad strip in the middle of the split, split into these three. And amongst the prize bindings at the uh, HRC in Texas, only those bindings which come from Arnhem use this particular form of construction. Uh, another useful uh, piece of information from that particular collection of prize bindings localized by their presentation inscriptions. Um, this is sometimes found on printed book work, as I've just said, but mostly on larger books. 
uh, there is a large and very elegant binding by Edwards of Halifax, laced through in this way in the Lewis Walpole collection in Farmington, showing how even such a sophisticated binder could borrow from account book practice to cope with a large, heavy book. It is also interesting to realize that Edwards' justly celebrated bindings are in origin nothing more than highly decorated Dutch stiff-board vellums, structurally indistinguishable even to the shape of the caps and less by the quality of the materials used. There seems, in fact, to have been a tendency in England to regard the style as one which lent itself to rather more elegant books than in Holland, almost invariably tooled and often with marble paper end leaves, something, again, which is very rarely seen on Dutch examples. They also rarely have the fore-edge extensions, the flaps running along the fore-edge of the boards. This connection between vellum and the, the gift book or fancy goods trade starts in England in the mid-17th century. This is a presentation binding on a pamphlet presented to one of the Tolmash family at Helmingham. Uh, the colour, the gold tooling, the use of a pink silk for the ties, all indications of its presentation status, if you like. And it is still to be found at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century on Dove's Press and Kelmscott Press books um, as a form of fancy binding, if you like, rather than the mainstream normal structural type. This is uh, one volume of the Dove's Press Bible. I cannot recall either seeing a Dutch stiffboard vellum without end bands, and typically they are worked uh, either through linen, as here, or vellum linings, another means of separating groups of bindings according to the material that the binder chose to use. <coughs> Um, over single or, more usually, doubled flat strips of vellum, the slips from which are then laced through the joint at an angle of approximately 45 degrees towards the centre of the board. They are also found, however, these stiff board vellum bindings, with stuck-on end bands, also with the slips laced through the joint. But this may, as suggested in my first lecture, be an indication of German origin. In fact, I'm almost sure it is. It is only at the very end of the 18th century, in the beginning of the 19th, that the end band slips cease to be laced in, and then only because the books are constructed in the same way as the leather-bound hollow-back books of the same period, in which the end-band slips would never have been laced in anyway. So, in fact, rather than having the same type of binding, you're turning into a, to a different type of binding structure where end-band slips were not used in this way. Although the material remains the same, the structure is changing underneath. The spines of the Dutch-style stiff-board vellums are usually lined between the supports, and here there are basically five options. The first... I suppose, always, is to leave the spine completely unlined and simply glued. And the second option was to line only the head and tail of the spines to reinforce the end-band attachment. If the spines were to be lined, the remaining options concern the material used. Vellum, often manuscript fragments, as you can see here. Um, a woven textile, usually linen. As This is on a, a Swedish binding. Or paper. Here, strips of marble paper, something when I first saw it which I thought must be an aberration because why should you put narrow strips of marble paper to use as a lining for a spine but in fact I've now seen half a dozen examples of this and it clearly is more common than I had suspected at first or you may find a combination of, all, of several of them at the HRC again I was shown one of these prize bindings which had both a printed textile and marble paper used as spine linings in combination but symmetrically arranged and not casually and accidentally used my experience of the work of individual English workshop, workshops suggests that binders were likely to be consistent in their choice of such materials, but obviously it will take a lot more work to establish just how reliable such distinctions may be. Both stiffboard and limp vellums will often have some form of fastening across the foreedge. This may be in the form of silk or linen ribbons, sometimes of different colours as here, and uh, juxtaposed so that you tie both colours together to make a multicoloured bow, 
or the use of tall thongs, which have a great variety of methods of attachment to the covers, um, being laced through one hole perhaps, or two holes, or as here, through three holes, and through the thong itself, you're forming a loop which goes through and back up to itself and then out of the cover to form the, the thong. Or indeed four sets of holes, as in this Italian example, you can see at the top the four holes punched through the, the vellum, and a single thong comes through from the outside, through a hole to the inside, to the outside again, to then split, and the two separate parts come through together and are twisted off. A very unusual form of doing it, but something which again is likely to be distinctive. The use of the ties at head, head and tail is also distinctive. And again, the use of the vellum inside out, in this case, actually this is goat parchment, you have the hair side here, the flesh side, the whiter flesh side on the outside, the binder using the material that way round to get a whiter book. Then there is the loop and bead type of uh, fastening from the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal, and also with their own varieties. This is a small bone bead and twisted gut. Here you have glass beads and multicolored straps. You may have cord used. You may have Turk's head knots tied in alum toward skin as the the small bobble over which the loop is fixed, uh, or you may find toggles worked in this way, serving a similar purpose, but all distinct from what is typical of northern Europe. Similar to and contemporary with the Dutch stiffboard vellum bindings is the Italian version, though it might be more prudent to refer to it as the Mediterranean version. Whereas the Dutch bindings and all the northern European variants almost invariably use calf vellum, the southern type is typically covered in goat or sheep parchment, the distinction clearly resulting as much from national differences in agriculture and diet as on economy or the binder's preference. Whilst they adhere to the same basic design as the northern style, they look and feel wholly different, and there are certain distinctive differences apart from the choice of the covering material. Although it threatens to be a rather subjective judgment and certainly has qualitative overtones, the Italian bindings are almost always less neatly finished than the Dutch ones. The caps less sharply modelled, the vellum over the board edges not so neatly moulded, and the text block, e text, block <coughs> sorry, the text block edges not so crisp and polished. Exceptions on both sides, of course, will be found, but the general rule seems to hold good. Another feature found on some Italian stiffboard vellums is a slight moulding of the vellum on the spine over the sewing supports, which again may be an indication of a fairly localised practice. You can just see over the supports here. It is creased on either side with a, a tool or a bone folder of some sort to hold the, uh, the shape in place. It is not something which I would associate with the northern bindings, the reason being that the Dutch version are... Uh, Dutch versions of this type of binding are sewn on flat vellum strips and there isn't enough shape underneath there to mould the vellum over. In this case, they are sewn on alum toward thongs or cords and there is a, a shape to mould over. There is, though, however, one extreme example in Union Theological Seminary Library where a German binder has tied the vellum up over substantial double bands, uh, the result that the book does not open. Uh, it is not a common fa commonly found type. Uh, perhaps another example of a single book creating its own category. The end bands on the Italian bindings are typically worked over twisted vellum rather than flat strips and are often angled across the joint very steeply, sometimes, as here, almost parallel to the joint. Again, something you will not find in the northern versions. The main sewing supports, when laced through the joint, are usually of an alum toward skin, but cord was used. Uh, especially when the slips were not laced through the joints, which is more often the case than in the northern type. But what you have here, in fact, is an Italian 18th century version sewn on cord and the cord laced through the cover. 
But notice, too, the way in which this particular binder has chosen to angle the slips as they come through the cover, presumably trying to stabilize the text block within the cover. And in the middle, where he, you know, the bottom he angled it that way, at the top he angled it that way, in the middle he took one of each, um, presumably unable to decide which way to do it. The end leaf construction is usually different too, often consisting of a single fold of paper folded around the first and last gatherings. This is typical of Italian work, also found elsewhere, of course, but typical of Italian work. And it gives a paste down and a single fly leaf with a folded stub visible between the outer and the next gathering, though this type is sometimes found elsewhere. In Dutch stiffboard vellums, various different types of end leaf format are employed, offering yet more scope for categorization. Also found in large numbers of Italian stiffboard vellums is a technique which involved pasting a, le- a paper lining across the spine and onto the outer leaves of the end leaves, slitting this at head and tail to leave a central portion, which was then pasted to the boards before the vellum was put on and held the boards in place. You can see it here quite clearly. The central portion here is a little triangular section of head and tail cut away so that the turn-in and the lacing-in could be carried out before these were pasted down with the paste down, completing the binding. It's something which you do not find on the northern stiffboard vellum bindings. The unpasted sections at head and tail allowed, therefore, the vellum to be turned in over the board edges and were themselves pasted down under the full paste down after the covering process was finished. It constitutes a major variation, though it was not always, it is not always immediately evident when you look at the books. Curiously, however, a not dissimilar technique is often found on Dutch stiffboard tight-back vellum bindings. That is where the vellum is adhered to the spine of the book. And what you've got here on the screen is an example of that. Um, And they constitute in themselves a wholly separate and distinct category of vellum binding. This is the tight-back bindings. But one which has more in common with leather-bound books, at least in structural terms. The limp and Dutch style stiffboard vellum bindings derive in many ways from the material itself, the vellum or parchment that is used, with the structures designed to work with the vellum Uh, even though measures of economy may have ended up robbing them of much of their refinement. Whilst Italian binders were able to substitute a particularly fine, thick cover paper for limp bindings, producing what are known as limp paper bindings, the vellum bindings I have so far described do not resemble other types of binding at all, that is to say, tight-back varieties. Vellum as a material does not lend itself, as does leather, to being flexed along long, narrow, sharp joints, hence the groove joint found on the Dutch stiffboard bindings nor is it an easy material to mould over raised sewing supports. The limp and hollowbacks are very little different, if at all, from the structures you would expect to find on leather-covered, stiff-board books. Uh, the same variety of sewing structures, end bands, end leaves, spine linings, board linings, board attachment, and so on, are all going to be found, and with them the same possibilities for identifying national, regional, chronological, and possibly workshop styles. I will not explore these further now, you may be relieved to hear, um, simply because their structures are not specific to vellum. This, in fact, implies an important distinction. When faced with such books, you are actually dealing with perfectly conventional, in inverted commas, structures, which happen to have been covered with vellum rather than leather. There is no reason why this particular book, which you saw earlier, uh, one of the bound volumes of the works of Sir Francis Bacon, um, might not have been covered in green vellum by order of the Earl of Orrery. Could we have the next carousel, please? who had a particular liking for the material, green vellum this is, um, and many of the books from his library are bound in it, as I hope we will see in a moment. Yes, um, structurally underneath, this is identical to those bindings on the, uh, the works of S- Sir Francis Bacon. The owner of the book 
if that is the, the way in which this happened, would then have had the choice of the material. It could have been put into Morocco, into calfskin, into sheepskin, or, as here, into vellum. The same volume, therefore, um, can be treated in these different ways, and that puts these tight-back vellum bindings into a completely different category from the hollow-back type bindings that we've been looking at earlier. The tight-back stiff-board vellums had, in fact, a remarkably long knife for a binding which is, in fact, inherently unsatisfactory in many ways, and preserved a decorative style, the blind or gilt center ornament, long beyond its currency in other types of binding. Such books are found in the latter part of the 16th century right across northern Europe, and at least in Holland survive until the very end of the 18th century, um, still decorated in the same way, the center blind ornament, which will be found uh, typically on, on a very great many of them. Um, they were made in England too throughout the 17th century, but the latest example that I have seen on an English imprint on the works of George Bull, printed in London in 1703, is something of a puzzle, in that various features of it are certainly more reminiscent of Dutch binding than English. The paper used for the end leaves is Dutch, the arms of Amsterdam, which would not in itself uh, be out of place on an English binding of the period, of course, because Dutch paper was commonly used. But the end leaf format is not typically English. It is the same as the Petworth prior that I described in my first lecture, in fact. The colours, brown and natural coloured threads used for the end bands, are typically Dutch, and the edges of the text block are sprinkled with what, again, are typically Dutch colours, red and blue. Whilst none of these features are unknown on English bindings, the question is how far they can allow us to localise this particular binding, which, although it comes from the Ely Cathedral Library, was not given to the cathedral until the 19th century. Its earlier history is unknown. Could it therefore be, have been bound in Holland possibly ordered by an Englishman in Holland, or indeed because it is in Latin by a Dutch theological scholar, or is it the result of Dutch influence in London? I really wouldn't like to say. In this case, a systematic record of the blocks used on the boards may provide the only answer. I know of only one feature of tight-back stiff-board vellum bindings which is unique to them, and that is an Italian covering method of the late 16th century, which avoided the problem of working the vellum over raised cords or bands. This is a technique now known as a slotted spine in which the raised bands are first covered with separate patches of usually alum tawed goat or sheepskin and the covering vellum has slots cut out of it uh, down the spine which fit over the bands. You can see the shape of the original covering very clearly here, the alum tawed goat skin or sheep and then the slot cut out of the vellum which avoids the problem of trying to mould this rather intractable material over the shape of the raised band. Uh, it's a technique common in the last part of the 16th century in Italy, in the beginning of the 17th. It is an admission of the difficulty of moulding the vellum over the raised, heavy raised bands. Curiously, given the comparative ease with which the covering could have been accomplished, vellum is rarely found to, use, to, to cover tight back books with recessed supports and therefore smooth spines. I actually know of only one example on a London imprint of 1655, though I'm sure there are more. Um, and that one is covered in a green-stained vellum uh, with a near-contemporary inscription on the back paste-down, so it is a mid-17th-century binding. In compiling this rather rushed count, I found myself having inexorably to deal with, material, deal with the material rather greater length even than I had expected, and I hope that the account will not have proved too tedious. Looking back over it, I now realize, in fact, that it could, of course, have been much, much longer. Uh, many, many variations have been left out. You will undoubtedly be pleased to know. Um, and it's, uh, the length, as it were, does prove my point, that when you begin to look into the apparently indistinguishable mass of plain bindings in some detail, it becomes possible to identify a great variety 
and from that variety to establish groupings based initially on major structural types and then within each genus, as it were, to identify species and subspecies. Uh, the binding on the screen, in fact, is a, a very unusual binding. It's a landscape format book. Um, General Dilks's report of the 20th 22nd Regiment of Horse, etc., reviewed by him in Ireland, 1772. It has this curious lacing along the joints of red silk. Uh, it is, in fact, a case binding sewn on flat vellum supports. Um, the edges cut flush, and the silk ribbon is simply a decoration added to give it a, a military flavor, presumably. Whether it, in fact, classifies as a distinct military limp vellum, I don't know. Uh, I've only seen this one example. I'm sure, however, there may be many more lurking in military museums and regimental museums in Britain. It is probably unrealistic to think in terms of identifying individual workshops solely by means of structural habits, unless they are very eccentric, though such habits are likely to be useful indicators. But it seems to me more than likely that fairly precise chronological and regional identities will emerge, not simply on a national level, but on a local level as well. The major obstacles are the vast quantity of material which has to be examined to arrive at the conclusions, and the degree of mechanical knowledge of binding that is required to recognize what is being examined. If you add to this what I think can be described as a, a cultural resistance to a serious study of bookbinding at this level, uh, I had a classic example at uh, Austin, Texas, a few days ago, uh, because bindings do not take any part in the process of creating texts and are more likely, therefore, to be seen as a decorative adjunct to serious bibliographical study than anything else. And then consider its implications, uh, consider its implications for the programs of mass rebinding in which many libraries, large and small, have indulged and in some cases still do indulge. And there are reasons for this too, uh, a lethal combination, I like to think of, ignorance, intellectual idleness, or at least lack of curiosity and poverty then it may become clearer why so little has been done in this field. The current interest in the history of the book trade offers the right home for the study of this type of bookbinding, and I can only hope that sufficient quantities of undisturbed books are still available for study when and if researchers begin to direct their attention towards it. Thank you. <laughs>